Thank you to the praise team for leading us so wonderfully this morning in worship. It's good to be here with you today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I do want to say before I begin, aloha. Some of you weren't ready for that. I'll give you another shot. You know, uh, I guess I should go ahead and warn you I'm okay with interactive time. Are you ready? I greet you with a good morning and aloha. aloha. You know, that is the typical greeting from our churches in Hawaii across our convention, but I think it translates in every place. As a matter of fact, I was in the coffee shop this morning and I had a, a Hawaiian muffin. So I appreciate the welcome that you've rolled out for me. It is good to be with you today. I ask if you will, as we study God's Word today, join with me in Acts chapter 17. As you're finding your way there, I do want to say it is, again, a joy for Wendy and myself to be with you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. It's my privilege to serve as the Executive Director of the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention. What that roughly means is I have the incredible honor of resourcing a staff team that comes alongside of our churches in any way possible to help them pursue to its completion God's will. And we continue to shift and adapt and move in these days. So I am extremely thankful to be with you and to have your partnership alongside of us in so many ways. The Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention is a, a very unique convention of churches. So I bring you greetings from our churches all across Hawaii, the South Pacific, and Asia. We cover quite an extensive territory. Some of you may not be aware. I'll give you a quick breakdown. We not only have churches on the six major Hawaiian islands, but we also have churches in the South Pacific and American and Western Samoa, Guam, Saipan, moving into Asia with Okinawa, Japan, Korea, Thailand, Manila. We cover an incredible territory. You can be praying for us in this way. Whenever you look across the continental United States, you have roughly 3.8 million square miles. But the area where the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention churches cover is 11.9 million square miles. Got 150 churches covering a, a, an incredible territory. Now I realize 99% of that is probably water, but in the places where our churches are located, especially the urban centers where our churches are located, we have over 150 estimated million lost people. It's an incredible amount of darkness. You can pray for us knowing that we are giving our best even in these challenging days to pursue God's will and to see the gospel go forward despite the darkness. So I do bring you greetings from our staff team and from the churches of the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention. And Dr. Greenway, thank you again for this invitation. It's a privilege to not only be a proud graduate of the Fish School and the World Christian Studies Program, but also... Uh, having so many friends and colleagues, and uh, I see so many familiar faces when we return. So it is good to be with you. We do celebrate the diversity and the multiplicity of people, groups, and nationalities across the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention, but we are centered around one vision. And that vision is we see every Hawaii Pacific church working together to be leaders and impacting God's kingdom throughout the Pacific and Asia. It's important whenever I say every church because no church is insignificant in God's work. 
And so I thank you for the pursuit that you take on daily as you are being further equipped to serve and to be God's vessel in leading a congregation or participating alongside of a congregation and reaching your community with the gospel. As I consider what we're looking at today, I do realize that God is in complete control. Around us may seem chaotic. There may be political issues or economic issues or pandemic issues or many, many other trials, but God's fully in control. And as we pursue his path, I know that he will use you as you seek to understand where he is guiding you and the call that he has given you to his mission. Now, these are significant days. It's important for us to realize that the world wants hope. We often say the world needs hope, but I want to remind you the world wants hope. That's why it pursues so many different directions and engages in so many different ways. But we, brothers and sisters, we have the hope. We have the hope in Christ and Christ alone. And it is our mission to take that hope of Christ to the world. We are the missionaries with the message. And I want to remind you today as we engage God's word in Acts chapter 17 that you're today's cross-cultural missionary. You may think to yourself, well, Chris, you don't understand. I serve in this community or I'm in this place. We're not in Hawaii. We're not in the South Pacific. We're not into Asia. Oh, friends, I think if you open your eyes like I do in your neighborhood, you'll find out that your area is just as cross-cultural as mine is. When we think about Christianity, we realize that it rests in an incredible global pattern of expansion and regression simultaneously all around the globe. Now, the gospel does not self-permeate all corners of the globe, but instead, as it is designed by God, it rides on the back of global Christians to every location and to every people group and to every area, every corner. As Christianity may be declining in one area, it's flourishing in another. But in every situation, a seedbed exists for God to be at work. And we have to be mindful of that. Every conversation, every interaction, every place you go is holding this opportunity. And as we are all on mission, as we go forward with the incredible message of the gospel, I want to remind you that as you carry that seed, God's ready to move, whether it be with a flurry of activity or whether it be at the beginning or some form of the continuation of a long pattern of growth. In every situation, we stand with a message knowing that God's ready to use us in our place and our time where we are. To me, it's a reminder every opportunity, every conversation is God-ordained. Now, in Acts 17, we read a passage where Paul is at Mars Hill or the Oropagus. And as Paul is here, I believe it's an extraordinary passage for us to study so that we can see clearly how to proclaim the gospel in a cross-cultural setting. As we study today, I want 
to encourage you to seek to understand Paul's approach. You know, we've read this passage many times. Many of you have taught it, you've studied it, you've shared it. But I want to walk through it this morning with an opportunity just to study his approach as much as his theology. And as we look at his approach, it is a reminder to us that this, this situation in Scripture should shape our hearts as we engage. It reminds us that everyone we connect with, God has prepared and he's chosen the times for us to communicate the gospel with. To be ambassadors for Christ and deliverers of the gospel message to our world, we have to prepare to overcome the cultural challenges. I believe, again, as I've said, that this preparation demands that we, in a sense, return to Mars Hill ourselves periodically to be refreshed because sometimes we can pick up habits and we can habitually follow a path and we may be losing contact without realizing it. We need to refocus periodically. And as we refocus, again, I pray this text will encourage you. Before we get into the text, some of you are already saying this uh, introduction is quite lengthy here, Pastor. Before we engage, I want to address culture for a second. Think about this. I jotted down some notes. Culture is defined all around us. In some ways, culture is ethnic. How a people group shapes over the years, whether it's decades, centuries, or millennia, will dictate some characteristics. So we see culture as ethnic, but it's also geographic. The local influences shape culture, whether it's particular language dialects, whether they're urban or rural areas, whether it's land-based or water-based resources that they draw from, um, whether the location is on trade routes or isolation, you see geographic factors always shift culture. Third, we also see that some culture is political or social. And these factors shape culture through laws, economic status, even wars and conflicts at times. Also, we see that culture is generational. The differences from grandfathers to grandchildren can be remarkable. I found that out myself, having four grandchildren, watching how quickly they can adapt, realizing how woefully far behind I am at times. Culture is generational. But that's just a few examples. I want you to remember, though, culture is continuous, continuously changing. It's always shifting. For example, Wendy and I just returned back last week from a trip in Japan. We visited some of our churches there. It's the first time we've had a chance to return since the pandemic began. So as we returned, we were alongside of Don Broker and the Japan Baptist Mission team of the IMB, as well as our Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention churches for about three weeks. And we noticed by observation some changes in culture. But I want to use Japan, say, for instance, as an example. First of all, their cultures are ethnic, far different in some aspects from China and Korea or even Hawaii. When you understand the ethnicities to look in Japan, we also see that cultures are geographic. Their rural areas are extremely different from their urban areas. I don't think there's any place in the world that's like Tokyo. But Tokyo and Osaka are two different places, even though they are very large. It's 
geographic, we also see that cultures are political and social. Okinawa feels like its own separate world, but it's Japanese. And so we see this political and social transition. We also realize that the cultures are generational. We would sit on a train, and as we're riding down the train, you notice sitting across from you an, an elderly gentleman in traditional Japanese attire, and he is sitting next to an extremely driven Japanese businessman, a young man with his briefcase and suit and tie and sharp and tight, and they both are looking across at a young person on the other side of the train on a device probably playing a game internationally with no telling who has competition, and the generational changes all sit right in one setting. Yet the cultures in Japan are changing. The old Japanese adage that the nail that stands up gets hit by the hammer, that's a picture in, in some people's ideas that Japanese culture presses conformity. If you try to rise up, the culture pushes you back down. Everybody functions the same. But that's changing. You can't use that adage any longer in describing Japanese culture. We noticed on, on our travels this time more rainbow and LGBTQ signage or attire or marks than we've ever seen before in Japan. We also noticed while we were there the Japanese who would not wear a mask, whether it be on the train or even in public. And it was, it was odd to see other Japanese look at them at times like, where's your mask? But things are changing. We also noticed the, the individuality of people, whether it was in their clothing or the way they acted. You just saw more. We saw more this time than we've ever seen before. Times are changing. Culture is changing. Now, I do want to add a note. Prayerfully, this movement toward individuality will help Christians in Japan realize that they don't need to be quiet and be pressed into culture, but they can rise up themselves. I pray that'll be the outcome. But I just want to address the fact that culture sits around us in an ever-evolving system, and it moves, and it's in different layers, and it regards different areas of life. If I were to take the United States for decades, if not longer, in the southern or the eastern United States, you could generally travel into a new community and find a church of your choice. It wasn't very hard. If you wanted to engage in a Christian conversation for the most part, it wasn't a difficult task. In the western United States, a little different. As a matter of fact, most folks in the West have no concept of generational Christianity. A father or a grandfather who's a believer, we have a lot of first-time believers in the Western United States. And to find a church in a community is rare. And there, there may not be a church for miles and miles around in some of our towns. It's just different. And things are changing. I want to remind you of a recent or growing trend that we're finding We've all heard of the atheist or the anti-theist, but I think now we're finding a new level of apatheism to where it's not a matter of not knowing God or, or anything about God or even standing against 
God, but most people in our world today just simply do not care about God. And that's a cultural shift. Craig Ott states, when we describe culture, we're really describing people and how they relate to one another. There's many more ways to define culture, but I want to remind you, and I want to stress this, we must be active students of the cultures where we share the gospel. And you need to be the contextual expert in the place that God has planted you. Some people come to me and they'll ask about Hawaii or the South Pacific or Asia. But I can tell you clearly, I don't know what it takes in Fort Worth. I've got a pretty good handle on what it takes across the Pacific and Asia. But I'll lean on you. Why? Because you should be the cultural expert of this place. As we look into the text, Acts chapter 17, I want to read this text for us and then I want to walk through it briefly. I want us to take a look at what it means to be cross-cultural missionaries in our world today. I want to take just a few moments and look at Paul's approach according to the setting and the way he delivers the gospel. We'll walk through that. Let me read the text for you. I use Christian Standard Bible. I'll begin reading Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Luke writes, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrine made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they may seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we, all, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Will you join with me in prayer as we have wrapped up the introduction? Now we engage God's Word for a few minutes. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we do ask that you would be honored and glorified in the teaching and preaching of your Word, of the understanding of this walk that we have with you and the life that we have in Christ. So speak to us, Holy Spirit, and strengthen us that we would be more like Christ, fulfilling your will, seeing the gospel go forward as you've designed. Bless our time, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back with me again into the text. The four portions I mentioned to you earlier, I'll clarify. First, we're going to take a look at the setting that Paul engages. Second, we will look at his approach. Third, we will look at the gospel. And finally, we'll look at the results. Now, Paul traveled ahead of Silas and Timothy as he is in Athens. And as he was there, he began to observe what was around him. Scripture says he was troubled by what he found. If we look at the setting, notice it says in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with those who worshiped God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It's always a reminder to us the Athenians were very proud of their culture and they wanted to hear from others. Paul reasoned with the Jews as this was his usual approach. And as he follows this pattern over and over again in the book of Acts, you'll notice whether it's voluntary or involuntary, every time he comes into a new city, a new area, usually on the Sabbath, he would engage the synagogue with the Jews and he would show the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. As he shared that, there were many At times, who were excited, who wanted to hear this news, there were others who were threatened by it, but regardless, Paul would share the truths. He also would engage the marketplace. And as we see in verse 17, he he goes into now an area where Greeks and other Gentiles would be as he is continuing to share. Verse 18 tells us that he also engaged the philosophers. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they were very different in their ways of looking at things, especially as Paul was sharing, and the difference between the two are remarkable. Both had contrasting views about the afterlife, so they were particularly intrigued when Paul talked about the resurrection. But as we look into this setting, we see the Athenians prided themselves on knowledge. It says very clearly in verse 20 that some said, what is this ignorant show-off? What is this man saying to us? Notice also others said he seems to be preaching foreign deities. It was a, a hunger to know more. Also in understanding the setting settings we see in these same Verses that the Athenians gathered from many different places and different cultures. As they, gathered together, as they gathered together, every city had a marketplace. And as Paul engaged that marketplace, the atmosphere was extremely multicultural. 
Again, verse 17 says he directed his interaction in different styles and different approaches. Luke says he reasoned daily with those who happened to be there. If we look further down into verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Now what Scripture does not tell us, we do see that the Athenians prided themselves on knowledge and they came from many different places. But what Scripture doesn't tell us, history tells us, that Athens was already in decline. Probably about 80 years before Paul arrived, the Romans had come in and, and conquered and they had destroyed much of Athens and Athens was already in decline. After Paul left, it continued. And that zeal for learning, it was not enough to sustain Athens. Now in understanding, again, verse 21, whenever it says they spent their time there on nothing else but telling or hearing something new, the latest thing was their interest until another latest thing came along. And as they continued to press forward in these activities, the knowledge let them down. The setting is extremely different. Not long ago, I was meeting with other Western state executive directors, and I was celebrating with them over the increase in non-Anglo churches that were being planted or that were growing in their convention. And it is exciting. I was hearing others say, we're at a place where 30% of our churches are non-Anglo. And others said, we're at a place of 50% non-Anglo. And they looked at me. They said, how many non-Anglo churches do you have? I said, uh, 100%. I may have a few Anglo pastors, but all of our churches are multicultural. Now, I don't say that pridefully. I just say that's my location. That's where God has me planted. The Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention holds a multitude of environments. But we always have to understand that if I'm going to engage culture and you're going to engage culture, we have to be students of those cultures. So your setting is critical. Next, let's take a quick look at the approach. Paul studied well in understanding the background of those he spoke with, whether it was in the synagogue or the marketplace or the Oropagus. Notice in verse 22, it says, He stood in the middle of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see you're extremely religious in every respect. Now, he opens with a compliment, although it was somewhat cynical. But as he shares that, they were very religious. And in an effort not to offend someone that their God was not represented, they had this altar to the unknown God. Paul addresses that unknown God as our Father God. And he begins to share. And look how he describes God as we look at the approach and as we try to see that he understands the background. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. In verse 24, he says, God is the creator. Secondly, in verse 25, he said, he's the sustainer. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He also describes God as the grand architect of all things in verse 26. Notice he says, he has determined the appointed times and the boundaries of where people live. Now, not only did Paul study well so that he could understand, 
their background, but he also studied well to understand their language. Now, I'm not referring to the Greek here. I'm talking about what does it take to communicate. Notice he begins in verse 27. He, he says, God did this so that they may seek after him and perhaps they may reach out and find him, although he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. I'm sure whenever he used their reference, that probably caught their attention a little bit. He understood their language. I remember years ago as I was pastoring in, uh, on the island of Maui, and so many people say, yeah, I could do that too. Had the privilege of pastoring on Maui. I remember one time in the middle of a message, I often stood on the floor to, to teach and to preach on Sunday mornings. We had a young lady from a Catholic background, raised her hand right in the middle of the message. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but you know, your first thought is, okay, Lord, where, where will we go? But she raised her hand. We probably averaged about 100 visitors a Sunday. When she raised her hand, I told everybody, hold on just one second, please. I said, yes, ma'am, you have a question? I knew she came out of a Catholic background. She often struggled sometimes with the doctrinal concepts. She raised her hand. She said, Pastor, I have a question. How does what we're talking about right now, I, I don't understand how it fit. And I said, oh, that's a great question. I said, you remember a couple of weeks ago, chapter before we were talking about this, and we said this, this, and this, and now this we're talking about today plugs in here. And, and it was amazing to see her in the back of the church. All of a sudden, her eyes lit up, and she said, I got it. Thank you. She said, that's awesome. And I said, yeah, it really is. Okay, everybody else, back to the message. And our visitors are probably like, what in the world was that? But you know what? You have to understand language. Please don't ever let the delivery of your message get in the way of communicating the gospel. If you're not effective, you've lost sight of the language. We also see, though, that Paul, as he continues, he addresses their need. The need is to know God. That's what he says in verse 29, since we're God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Moving into verse 30, he addresses now the gospel. Notice the gospel never changes in its truth. He says clearly, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Same message today, right guys? Same message. The gospel never changes in its truth. Now, Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have the payment for our sin. We have the righteousness of Christ on our account. But only through that miraculous work of God are we born again. There's no change. Notice, though, also, although the gospel never changes in its truth, it's always changing in its communication. As Paul's delivering this, he says... God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, we know he's talking about Jesus. He doesn't reference it, the name here. may not be the approach you use when you're sharing the gospel here in Fort Worth or wherever God has you, but it's the same truth and you will adapt to the circumstance you find yourself in to communicate the truth. We have to be mindful. Notice also, though, that the gospel is life-changing 
in its purpose. That's where he said he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When I hear the message of the gospel, I have to realize that whether it's in Hawaii, South Pacific, Asia, or Fort Worth, there's a world out there that needs truth. We hold the truth. We hold the message. How we communicate the gospel may change from one conversation to the next, but it's vitally important. It's vitally important that we communicate it. And we communicate it with truth. We communicate it with within the setting, within understanding who we're talking to. Now the results he gives us in verse 32, beginning in verse 32, they change. Paul said, or excuse me, Luke says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Well, we realize in the results, some are going to laugh. That simply happens because most people are uncomfortable with the message that they've heard. Don't be offended by that. That doesn't mean we respond arrogantly, but I do think we need to anticipate that, especially in a world that's changing around us constantly. The apatheist we talked about earlier, he'll probably laugh. He'll probably say, I have no need for that. I could care less about God. But don't look at that as rejection and walk away. Realize there's still a little deeper work that needs to take place. And embrace that. You'll notice also, there are others in verse 32 that said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Some will ask. And they'll ask for a little bit more. They may not be ready yet, but they want to ask a little bit more. Every farmer knows all of the seeds thrown, they'll not bear fruit. But it's up to God to make them grow. I mean, that was Jesus' illustration. I think it's valuable for us today. But notice some of them did respond. Some followed like Dionysius and Damaris and others. When we look into this passage and we see this cross-cultural environment that Paul's found himself in, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, it's the same environment we find ourselves in every day. The gospel originating here in the Middle East and it's moved from Africa and Europe and into North America, South America, into Asia, all the way to Hawaii and into the Pacific Islands and May I even say, I think it's here in Texas. It's the same gospel message. But I know you're already aware of this. I'll say it one more time, though. You need to be an active student of the environment in which you're presenting the gospel to. Because that message is vital. And there's a world out there that wants hope. couple of questions I'll leave you with. Who's someone that God has on your mind to share the gospel with? Do you feel as though you've been a student enough of that individual and their setting and how God wants you to bring that message that you'll share that with Him clearly? If you're not comfortable with it, get busy because God has the gospel message for them to hear and He wants to use you. Are you willing to get to know them better so that you can communicate the gospel in a way that they can understand? 
And are you ready to respond to the call to be that cross-cultural missionary for our world today? I hope you are because the world is at your door. The world is at your door. And I'm excited about that. That's because the gospel doesn't go forth on its own. It's on your back. And it's on my back. And where God leads us, let's go. We've got work to do. God bless you all. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being with you. I want to encourage you in the work that God has you about. I'll be alongside of you any way that I can. But we have some good days ahead of us. I say it again. Let's go.